Morning, friends. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to uh, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Great to see you all today. Welcome to you who were coming for Sunday school and found yourself in church instead. Let me read our passage today before we begin. Hear the word of the Lord, Mark 6, 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. May the Lord add his blessing to our passage, and let's ask for his help as we begin today. Christ Jesus, do give us seeing eyes and guard our hearts from the condition the people at Nazareth were in. Father, of uh, taking your son for granted. Uh, please, uh, Lord, peel back the, the callous uh, on our hearts if one exists there. Use your scalpel, your divine scalpel, uh, the scalpel of your word to remove it today. And Jesus, give us soft and tender hearts uh, toward you, receptive hearts toward your truth. Uh, do this work among us by your good spirit. And Savior, help me to preach clearly and have a clear mind and a strong voice today. And we entrust ourselves into your care. Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen. Familiarity breeds contempt is a saying that you may have heard a time or two. Um, you might not exactly be sure what it means, though. Familiarity breeds contempt. It's simply trying to convey this idea. One definition says, calls it, it means that, quote, extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something leads to a loss of respect for them or it, unquote. It's a little involved, so let me boil it down. When a person regularly deals with awesome things, he or she can become too familiar and too casual with them. Here's an example of familiarity, familiarity breeding contempt. According to the Associated Press, the North Carolina State Medical Board suspended the license of a neurosurgeon in Wilmington, North Carolina, after an investigation turned up remarkably casual behavior on his part during brain surgery. 
The investigation revealed that in the middle of one surgery, as a patient's brain was exposed, the neurosurgeon left the operating room for 25 minutes to go and have lunch. While he was having lunch, no other physician was present in the operating room to care for the patient. In another case, the neurosurgeon told a nurse to drill holes in the patient's head and work on the outer brain, even though she was untrained for such procedures. This is uh, a rather glaring example of how being overly familiar with something can lead to a loss of respect for it. There's another clear example in our passage. We just read it. Uh, in the village of Nazareth, we discover that their familiarity with Jesus and the contempt that rises from that, it's where we will see this uh, principle come uh, to play. Uh, as J.C. Ryle said, a, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s in, in London, Ryle said, it is an awful truth that in religion more than in anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. In religion, in the Christian faith, more than anything else. And so I want to ask you this morning if this just might be true of any one of us in the room today, that we have become so familiar with um, Christian things, that we've become so familiar with getting up and going to church on Sunday morning. I mean, after all, we are in the Deep South, and, and attending church on Sunday is still a thing. Uh, some of you have grown up following mom and dad to church. But like these people of Nazareth, you think you've got Christ all figured out, and you've said that crucial prayer that everybody thinks you should say, you're good, and now you just need to get on with what you want to do. And very much fall into this pattern of being over, overly familiar with Christ. Well, uh, let me go on so we can see how this unfolds before us. Our passage today has three parts to it. And we'll see how this unfolds, this familiarity with over-familiarity with Jesus through these three parts. Or as Ryle described it as the awful truth that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. First, I want to point you to Jesus' hometown. This is the first part of our passage. Um, and Jesus, we see here, leaving the area of Capernaum. Um, so far in Mark, mostly, Jesus has been centered, centered his ministry in and around the village of Capernaum. But now we find him leaving a second time to, to minister in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, and I want to point out two things in this area of his hometown. Uh, first is we see him ministering to the surrounding area, as I've already mentioned. Uh, for the second time, Mark describes him leaving 
Capernaum and going to areas outside of uh, Capernaum. Uh, we see this in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Uh, up until this point, uh, we've seen Jesus uh, around the village of Capernaum. That he's, this is his adopted uh, town, his home base, as it were. We've seen him minister along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we saw him cross the Sea of Galilee and minister in Gergesa, where he cast a, a, a legion of demons, a, a veritable army of demons out of one man. They made the trip back. Whoops, where did my red dot go? Oh, rats. There it is. Saw it somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Made the trip back. And we found him again near Capernaum last week. Now he's traveled the, the opposite direction all the way down here. If you can see uh, where Nazareth is, this is uh, his, uh, the town where he grew up. Not necessarily where he was born. We know that's Bethlehem, but this is uh, the place where uh, he, he grew up. Um, he's, again, this is the second time that Mark tells us he's, he's left the area. Nazareth was, uh, as we say in the south, a podunk village. It uh, was a very obscure place, less than 500 people, and only occupying uh, uh, a measly 60 acres. Uh, by comparison, Canton occupies nearly 12,000 acres, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. So this is a tiny and what we would say insignificant place. Uh, we see first then that Jesus is ministering in areas uh, surrounding Capernaum. And, and then the next thing I want to point out here in this area of his hometown is that this is probably a second visit. Uh, we read about his first visit to Nazareth just moments ago in Luke chapter 4. Some believe that um, what our passage is today and what we've just read in Luke are the same event. It's remotely possible, I believe. I don't think it's likely. Um, the visit we're, we read about in our scripture reading probably took a place a year before this. A visit that ended, as you see, of them trying to throw him over a cliff, which is, which is part of stoning someone, is to... Uh, first uh, attempt to kill them by pushing off, uh, pushing someone off a cliff. Uh, some scholars believe that this is a second visit, uh, and that Luke 4 is a previous visit. And, and among who, those who think this are, are Kent Hughes, Sinclair Ferguson, the MacArthur Study Bible. But you might be thinking, so what, Pastor Rob? What does it matter? So what if this is a second visit? It matters because our passage today describes Jesus in his great mercy, returning to a village that's already tried to kill him. It's profound grace that we find him revisiting his hometown, attempting to reach uh, the people of his hometown with the good news of God's kingdom. And we see his disciples with him. And, and so we know this is not a personal visit just to drop in on mom and say hello and check in on his brothers and sisters. This is an official visit with his, with his disciples in tow 
And he comes in his capacity not as uh, the son of Mary and brother, uh, half-brother of these other people mentioned, but he comes as God's anointed king, the Messiah. This is... This is the setup, this is the background, as it were, the backstory of, of what, we're, what we're encountering today. Uh, so in the first part of our passage, we hear his hometown described, and, and we see the purpose of his visit is to, is to return and extend grace again, the offer of the kingdom to the people he grew up around and even his own family members. So this is, this is the first part of our passage. Let's move on and, and see the second part now. Uh, we move from Jesus' hometown, and, and second, we, we discover Jesus teaching, uh, teaching in the synagogue, as was his custom. And let me point out two things here as well. And the first thing I want you to notice is the amazement that comes uh, from the people, they're simply astounded at his teaching. This we see in verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Uh, it was his custom to attend uh, the, Jewish, uh, the synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday. Mark tells us that there is a large crowd present. It says, and many who heard him... Um, Archaeologists have discovered the ruins of a synagogue like these. There, there, there's some all over the ancient world, Rome and, uh, and other places where uh, Jewish people lived, including Judea and Galilee. One of the best preserves one, preserved ruins of a synagogue is actually in the city of Capernaum. And they have... Uh, an artist has reconstructed what a synagogue would appear to be. You see on the back wall, they had uh, bench seating, or we call it stadium seating, uh, as, uh, uh, you know, those hard uh, stadium seats, and this is why you buy those fold-out chairs that have padding on them and clip them. There was, of course, nothing like this, and so it was all bench seating, and you can see perhaps... Uh, uh, one of the uh, synagogue rulers ministering down front. Uh, in these uh, synagogues, there was usually some kind of place to store uh, Old Testament scrolls. Uh, there was also a very ornate and decorative chair. Uh, many churches you've attended, they have a, a chair up front on the platform, which we studiously avoid. Uh, which I've been offered several times, but have turned down every time, where the where the deacons or the elders sit. Um, in fact, I was offered this just past Tuesday night, and I I turned it down again. Um, but this this one seat was called the seat of Moses, or the Moses seat, and this was important because it, this was understood as a symbol of the authority of Moses. That the person sitting there and reading the scripture passages spoke with the authority of Moses. But friends, somebody greater than Moses is here this morning uh, teaching at the synagogue. There's evidence also, written evidence, that describes what a synagogue service included. It would include singing. It would include uh, the reading of prayer uh, and then the reading of Scripture in Hebrew. Hebrew. 
uh, with a translation into Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, um, but that was the local language of the day. So read in Hebrew, translated into the common language, and this was followed by a short sermon on that reading, and then concluded with a priestly blessing. This is what Jesus has been asked to do, is to read the weekly scripture passage. We saw this in Luke 4 that we read this morning. He reads a portion of Isaiah, and then he explains uh, part of it. This has taken place before you this morning, he said. And, and this appears to be, again, what he's been asked to do. Uh, he is recognized as a traveling teacher. After all, he's got a group of, of men following him. Uh, so he acts like a rabbi, and as a, a rabbi, he is offered the opportunity uh, to teach at the local synagogue. And, and we've seen before in Mark that he teaches with such power and authority that it left people with their mouths hanging open. Again, notice what it says in verse 2. Um, and many who heard him were astonished. That term means to be amazed or overwhelmed. Uh, the modern phrase we sometimes use is blown away. Um, this had been typical whenever Jesus taught. Um, in Mark 1, Mark said, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Uh, after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Luke said they were uh, astonished in, in our scripture reading. Hear, hear what Dr. F uh, Sinclair Ferguson says. The, the amazement of the people was obvious. Whenever Jesus preached, people recognized the note of authority and authenticity in his message. He preached biblically, simply, graciously, and powerfully. And naturally, they wanted to know where Jesus learned to teach like this. I mean, after all, he did grow up there. How did he come by this? You look again in uh, verse 2, uh, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands, referring to the miracles that he had performed in other cities. What's the source of all this? Where did he get the ability to do that? This is the right question to ask. This is our local boy. How did he get this ability? Where did it come from? It is the question they should have been asking. And so initially, they have a very... Positive response to Jesus' teaching. Wow! Can he handle the word? And what wisdom he has. Where do you learn to do that? It astonished them. But what we see is this, this amazement quickly turns to resentment. This is the second thing I want you to note here. Jesus' teaching offended his hometown. They're using only human wisdom. And they're asking the right question, but in their, their natural reasoning, they arrive at the wrong answer. And they're put off. 
they're repelled. And, and the more they think about it, it really rubs them the wrong way. Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? And this is a term uh, used for more than just carpentry. Tecton describes the handyman who could do just about anything. He could build yokes and he could build furniture and he could also work with stone. He could, uh, he could build small building, buildings. Uh, we might even call him a contractor. I mean, he can put up practically anything people in the village needed. And the reason they asked this is to point out and remind themselves of his common background, that he didn't study under a rabbi. He didn't have the proper credentials to be teaching in the synagogue or to be traveling around. Who does he think he is leading around a group of men and teaching them? He's nothing more than the local handyman. These people had no status and no standing. They were not highly regarded. We might, sometimes we um, put a day laborer into this category. And we think of day laborers like this. Uh, that would have been the way they thought of Jesus. But they go on and they, they ask a different question. Uh, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? I don't know if you noticed in Luke, it asked if he was the son of Joseph. But here they asked if he's the son of Mary. And some think that maybe Joseph has died at this point. And that's why he's addressed as the son of Mary. Some scholars see a much darker meaning here. Because children were always referred to by their fathers, even if their fathers were dead. He still should be referred to as son of Joseph. And so these men conclude from this reference uh, that Mary's name is given is because the real father was unknown. And so at the very least, they're, they're reminding people of the rumor about when he was born, you remember, don't you, that we weren't sure who his father was? And it could be even worse than that. It could be an outright accusation that Mary was a woman of loose morals and that Jesus was her illegitimate son. It's intended as an insult. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this, isn't this a day laborer? Isn't this, uh, isn't he the son of that woman? And, and then they further ask, this is at the end of verse 3, and is this not the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And the reason they name these names, uh, well, this is a list of his half-brothers and half-sisters. These are children that Joseph and Mary had after Jesus was born. Recall he was Mary's firstborn son. And oh, by the way, this rather refutes the claim of the Roman Catholic Church that Mary remained a virgin, uh, was a perpetual virgin, but 
oh, never mind that. Um, the point of the question, the point of listening out these brothers and sisters was to point out that Jesus, he's just the local boy. He's one of us. His family's right here. And so they use their human wisdom after hearing him teach. They use natural reasoning, and they arrive at the wrong answer to their question. Where did he learn to teach like this? How did he become so wise in his speech? And, and we've heard about miracles in other places. How, how, did he, how can he do those? Well, you know, well, the source surely can't be God. God's not doing this through him because we know who he is. He's the, he's the handyman. He's the, the illegitimate boy of that woman, and he's a local boy to boot. And look at the result. There at the very last sentence of verse 3, and they took offense at him. The word is scandalizomai. Uh, you hear the word scandal in there. They were scandalized by him, profoundly offended by him. And you've heard people talk this way. Just who does he think he is anyway? And where does he get off telling us what God is like and, and how to live our lives? I mean, he ain't nobody. He's a local boy. J.C. Ryle comments on their response. They could not think it possible that one who had lived so many years among them and whose brothers and sisters they knew could deserve to be followed as a public teacher. They would not believe that one whose face they knew so well and who had lived so long eating and drinking and dressing like one of them had any right to claim their attention. They were offended at him. And then Ryle goes on to say what I've pointed out to you earlier. It is an awful truth that in religion, more than in anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. Ah, friend, is this true of us? I often ask if this is true of myself. I mean, I can almost say... I don't know that many of you could say this, and I say it from a fleshly standpoint, that I've been in the church a lot longer than many of you, if not most of you, because my dad was a pastor. And I grew up hearing the gospel. And I grew up attending Sunday school and going to church every time the doors were open. And if there's in, ever anyone in danger of having, of being overly familiar and it bringing contempt, it's me. And I have to, I have to read this first for myself. Do I really think I've got Christ down? I have some experience with him, that's for sure. But obviously not enough. Could that be true of you? That you who are all of 16 think you've got it all down? Well, I have to say, again, from a fleshy point of view, 
I got it down better than you do. Because I've been going to a church, going to church a lot longer than you. Oh, of any of us, could we imagine that we're so familiar with Christ that we know all there is to know about Him? It's such a it's such a danger. It's such a danger for a church like us who 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 teach the Bible every week and first in our discipleship hour and then again here. And we'll do it Wednesday night. And we'll be back next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, it's Oh, it's a, it's a great danger. Well, the, the crowd is amazed to begin with, but it turns to resentment very quickly. Who is he? Who does he think he is? He's just the local kid. And then we go on to the third part, and this is where we see Jesus' amazement. It's Jesus' turn to be amazed. Dishonored by his hometown, he's astonished at them. I want to point out three things here to you about this amazement. He starts with a proverb in verse 4. Notice what it says. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. The MacArthur Study Bible calls this an ancient proverb. Not necessarily because it's from the book of Proverbs. It's merely an ancient saying. Just another way of saying familiarity breeds contempt. It was what Jeremiah experienced from his own family. Uh, They knew him and they treated him with contempt. Uh, the people of Jeremiah's household treat him, him with contempt. Jeremiah 11 and 12, uh, we see that. And, and Jesus is experiencing uh, something like Jeremiah did. And, and look at what he does here. He includes his relatives and in his own household, his brothers and sisters don't even believe in him. Uh, John says for, uh, John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, we know later that James would uh, believe in his brother and, and go on to lead the church in Jerusalem and write the book of James. And then Judas, otherwise known as Jude, would uh, come to believe in his, his half-brother and, and write the book of Jude for us that we studied last spring. So Jesus begins to sum up what's going on through this ancient proverb and, and noting that even his family members have rejected him. And this this goes on to prevent him from performing miracles among them. And we see this in verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's not that he was powerless. It's not that they somehow limited him. Uh, Ken Hughes says it's that he would would do no mighty work there. He was not in the practice of performing miracles in places where he was rejected. And he would, would not perform a miracle there uh, when he was treated so 
callously and dishonored uh, by the people. There were a few uh, so desperate, uh, in such great pain, that they allowed him to lay hands on them, and, and he healed them. But a very limited number, it seems, from verse 5. And then we come to uh, the astonishment. Apologize, it doesn't begin with verse uh, with a P. The perplex the perplexity. There we go. Um, Jesus is 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 just. He can't. He's he's beyond belief. I read a I read an article two weeks ago, and I was sitting in Burger King. Yeah, I know Burger King's bad. And uh, I read this article, and I've told a couple of you, I was reading it on my phone, I was just shaking my head in disbelief the whole time. And this is what we, this is the kind of uh, feeling. I was stunned as I was reading these words. I can't believe it. Oh my goodness. And this is the kind of response Jesus his, has had uh, toward his hometown. Um, it's not the same word that he uses to, to describe the people in the synagogue, but, but it's close. Uh, uh, it means to be amazed, astonished. Other words, synonyms, uh, it can be used in a good sense, this word. And Matthew uses it like this. As he describes the faith of a Roman centurion, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was stunned and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, I mean, look at this, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. God's people don't even have faith like this Roman soldier does. And he was shocked. It can be used in a bad sense, as Mark does here. And, and this is kind of the head-holding, head-shaking. I, I can't believe this. It's just reeling in shock at how callous and how astonished he was that they so casually had rejected him. And it's because of this unbelief that he moves on uh, from from Nazareth, this verse 6 says, and he went about among the villages, other villages, teaching. I just wonder if Christ would be amazed at us this morning. Uh, amazed, uh, he could be amazed in, in two ways, just as I've mentioned. He could uh, shake his head at us and... and Stunned amazement at the faith he sees you display. Wow, look at that. And I, I don't want to be flippant here. And maybe he gathers an angel or two. Take a look at that, would you? Would you look at that faith? Again, I apologize if that's uh, uh, too casual. Or like the city of Nazareth, would, would he be shocked? Oh my goodness. Astonished at our unbelief. 
I, uh, I, I fear that at times the Lord looks at me, and I don't know that he actually says this or if it's just me. You know, you who claim to have followed Christ for so long, and you are struggling with doubting me here. Haven't I proved myself? And don't I love you? And didn't I display that on the cross? And of course I'm nodding my head. Then I can't believe you just did what you just did. Out of unbelief and lack of trust in me. I wonder, I I would never accuse you of that. but, But if I know it's happened to me, I wonder if he looks on us and, oh boy, work to do. Jesus is stunned. It's his turn to be amazed. Dishonored by his own. And unable to perform or unwilling to perform miracles to uh, such callous people. He is astonished at their unbelief. So, again, as as J.C. Ryle said, and I think he says it well, it's an awful truth that in religion, more than in anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. Let me, let me uh, make an application or two to you this morning. It could be that, that you don't know Christ. And, and so this, what, what are you talking about? And you've been a religious person all your life. You've You've uh, you've been in church your whole life, but you know nothing of personal faith in the Son of God. He's not just a handyman. He is God's holy Son who surrendered his life on a cross to pay the penalty for sins. If you're not sure what any of that means, I'd love to speak to you after the service about uh, personal faith in Christ and about following him. As I mentioned, I point out to you who grew up in Christian homes like I did, that you and I can, we've been around it so long, it just becomes routine. Would that not be the kiss of death? Routine. There are plenty, there are certainly good habits we we should form like being here on the Lord's Day. But we come not to just go through the motions. We come to we come to be with God's people and to fellowship with them and to sing praise to God's Son for His redemption and, and to know Him and to hear Him speak to us through His Word. And if you feel dead to it, I urge you to begin by just telling the Lord and describing the deadness you feel and repenting. Lord, I am dead inside and I know that I should not feel this way toward you. Bring me to life. Resurrect me. Give me life according to your word, Lord Jesus. If that's you, Uh, perhaps begin there. And again, I would be happy to talk to you about that if uh, you struggle there. 
And those of us who are still amazed, those of us for whom the fire still burns, stoke the flames. Stoke the flames by thinking of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Stoke the flames by considering that the Father, in his great love, not for the church, but for you. And you. And you chose you before the foundation of the earth. It's not just that God chose the church before the foundation of the earth. It's that God chose Steve McGowan before the foundation of the earth. And Alan Reese before the foundation of the earth. And John Penn before the foundation of the earth. And that God set his love on Jeff Sohoff before the foundation of the earth and chose him to be his own son. Think about that. And what possible reason could he have had for doing that? It is out of his great love and mercy. That's what drove him to make you an object of his grace to, uh, to show you off in eternity, as it says, I believe in Ephesians or Colossians, uh, that you would be a trophy of his grace and that your life and your conversion would glorify him for his great salvation. We think about things like that because that's what keeps the fire burning. And we don't, we don't look down on theology. We embrace it because it's there that we read truth like this. Ephesians 1. <clears throat> and, and, and we stagger at the depth of what God has done for us in Christ. And what he does every, every nanosecond of the day to keep us in his grip. This is what keeps the fire burning for you that still have the flame going. You know, there's no place where familiarity breeds contempt, perhaps no place more than the Lord's Supper. And there are two ways you can approach it. There's probably multiple ways. You can think, well, if I've done it once, I've done it a million times, so let's just get it over. Oh, please don't think that. And, and, and you know, here's, this, is all, this is all that stands between me and my lunch. Those are not the right things to think. This is calling you to, to remind you that this is what it costs to save you. That God, though he chose you before the foundation of the earth, he sent his son in time to purchase you on the cross by paying for your sin. This reminds us of that. The, the church at Corinth was another example of 
familiarity breeding contempt. I mean, to them, the Lord's Supper was old hat. It was routine. That's why Paul writes this in the following instructions. I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, some of you come to this uh, you know, the Lord's Supper then was uh, a communal meal that took place at the end of the service, a love feast. And this was the very last thing that they would do. And apparently there were some that were just strutting their stuff, um, showing how advanced spiritually they were, uh, uh, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Can you imagine? Can you embrace someone coming to this uh, love feast in the service, uh, not waiting for the poor brethren who had not arrived yet? Um, I mean, they needed this meal for their daily meal. They weren't like the more wealthy people who, who could eat at home as well. And so they needed this food. And, and, and some are going ahead and starting. It's like starting, uh, you know, getting the meatballs before we've even prayed for the food. That's a little flippant. I'm sorry about that. It's just far worse. Far, far worse than that. Um, and, and then people getting intoxicated over the over the wine. How, how could you think that getting drunk at the Lord's Supper would be a good thing to do? Oh, just... What? <coughs> do you not have houses? Excuse me, where am I? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I won't. These are people who familiarity has bred contempt. Let's just pause as we usually do and make sure this isn't true of us today, that we understand, as Paul goes on to say, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, <coughs> that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, I am, I'm not actually holding up my body to you because my body, Jesus would have said, is right here holding the bread, which is a separate thing. This is my body. In other words, this represents my body. This is a symbol of my body broken for you, which would take place uh, the next day on the cross. And so eat this to remember that I have given my life for you. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the blood that would be shed the next day. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. In other words, drink this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. It doesn't become his blood because his blood was still in his body pumping through his veins. This represents the blood I will shed on the cross. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till you come. So let's, uh, I pray, put into practice what we've seen in Mark 6 today. And let's not let familiarity breed contempt, in particular when it comes to the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. So if I could get the guys, are there men to serve, Alan? The four guys who are going to help me serve, if you'd come down, please.